Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are very pleased and honored to have with us today Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Jacobson, affectionately known as Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. Rabbi Jacobson is an internationally acclaimed speaker, educator, and writer. Rabbi Jacobson has served as editor-in-chief of the Algemeiner Journal, and Rabbi Jacobson was also the transcriber for the Lubavitcher Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson of Blessed Memory. Rabbi Jacobson has authored numerous works, including A Tale of Two Souls on the Tanya, A Journey Through the Fundamentals of Fasidus, and Muna series, Captain My Captain. And today we will be discussing with Rabbi Jacobson the history of Hasidism. Again, Rabbi thank Jacobson, you. thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation and for the opportunity and the privilege. Thank you. Um, generally speaking, what were the primary reasons for the rise of Hasidism, and why, in fact, was it called Hasidism? Great question. So the answer to the first question is, the founder of the Hasidic movement is known as Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov actually means the master of a good name. His individual name was Yisrael, Israel. He was born in the Ukraine in the year 1698. I should say that some historians give the date of his birth a few years later, 1700. Uh, in the tradition of Chabad, where I grew up, which has a tradition all the way back to the founder of Chabad, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, whose teacher was a direct student of the Baal of the tradition is 1698 on the 18th of Elul, right before Rosh Hashanah, September. The Baal was born in Ukraine. And uh, this is a time, let's understand, what does 1698 look like in Jewish life? So it's not an easy time. It's especially a difficult time in Eastern Europe for a few reasons. First of all, Jews were just emerging from the horrific, horrific massacres of 1648-49, what's known as the Smolenetsky pogroms. Bogdan Smolenetsky, the leader of the Cossacks, there's still a statue of him in Kiev, unfortunately. He led the Cossacks in a titanic massacre of the Jewish communities in Poland and the Ukraine. The numbers of deaths range between 100,000 and 300,000. Till the Holocaust, this massacre was, was unparalleled, unprecedented, not only in terms of numbers, but also the sadism and the brutality. I'm not going to get graphic here, but we have diaries from the time by Nathan Hanover and others about how the Jewish men, women, and children were murdered throughout these communities. The shockwaves, the pain, the horror, the darkness in which it plunged the Jewish world into is very difficult to describe. So that's in terms of the morale and the physical destruction. Besides that, you have another event that shook up the Jewish world, and that's the false Messiah, Shabzai Tzvi. Shabzai Tzvi, who converts to Islam just a few decades before the Baal Shem Tov is born. You're talking about 1666. Shortly after the Chalonetsky pogroms, a huge part of the Jewish world believes that he's actually the Messiah, the Mashiach, and they prepare for it. And when he converts to Islam, the shockwaves it sends through the Jewish world are difficult to describe. 
This was a spiritual blow of unparalleled proportions. Finally, their hopes were high. After all this darkness, God is sending the Messiah. And he had a Gavaldic great spokesman, Nathan from Gaza, who did an amazing, amazing job. So I would say the morale of the Jewish people at the time shattered, shattered to pieces. The physical poverty was incredibly excruciating. The spiritual spirit and morale was at an all-time low. The sense of cohesion and unity and pride and dignity in the Jewish community was very, very, very um, uh, difficult. It was, it was just non-existent. There was, a, there was a hierarchy and there were the simpletons. There were terrible divisions. And I would say, you could say that the Jewish people have finally become so weary of a long and painful exile where there was profound despair. Now, there were the great scholars, you would say the elite of the Jewish people, but a little connection with the masses of the Jewish people and a terrible divide. So on a social level, financial, moral, spiritual, psychological, the Jewish people were really facing the abyss. And it's that time, as the Hasidim would say, that God breathed in a spark of redemption into the Jewish people, a spark of redemptive consciousness by the name of Yisrael Baal Shem Tev. The Hasidim have a great uh, metaphor. And they say sometimes when a person is in a faint, what do you do? You whisper their name into their ear to revive them. So how could God revive the Jewish people? He whispered into the Jewish people their name. What is our name? Yisrael. Hence the birth of Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. He wasn't just an individual. He became a person who gave the Jewish people back their name, their identity, their destiny. And essentially the Hasidic movement did something that is incredible from a historical point of view. In a few decades, it managed to change and affect the lives of millions and millions and millions of Jews. Such a revolution without one drop of blood, without an army, without a lot of money, without power, without influence. Talk about a grassroots movement from within. How the Baal Tov did it is, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a miracle. When you're talking already in the 1700s, just a few decades after the Baal Tov's passing, the Hasidic movement has gripped the imagination of millions and millions of Jews in Ukraine, in Poland, and ultimately in much of Russia, and then it would travel to most of the countries in Eastern Europe. Not all, but most. And it really, I would say, it transformed the landscape of Jewish thought, of Jewish consciousness, and of Jewish spirit. The and name Hasidim, Hasidim, interestingly, was not given by the Hasidim. Okay. It was given to them by their opponents. <laughs> the Hasidim themselves, in the first generation, they called themselves Balei Tshuva. People don't know this. The students of the Balshandus called themselves Balei Tshuva, <laughs> which today is a term used for people who return to Judaism after growing up in a secular home. They're called Balei Tshuva. But the Balshandus students were all FFBs. They were from, from birth. They, were, they grew up in religious homes. They called themselves Balei Tshuva because one of the great messages of Hasidus is that we are all Balei Tshuva. That life is always about reinventing yourself every day. Because truth is infinite, and infinite you never own. You always discover more and more and more and more. Another tremendous element of Hasidus is that failure is inherent to life. 
Don't look for perfection. Seek for accountability and connection. So they call themselves Bali Tshuva. Another name they had in the early generation was the Freilata, the happy ones, the joyous ones. Because the Baal Shem Tev, he revolutionized Jewish life by focusing on the need and the ability to celebrate. You could say what the Baal Shem Tev did was, he saw that redemption did not happen. And disappointment was so deep. So I think he took the spark of the Messiah from the future and he planted a little bit of it into every Jewish heart. <laughs> so he, he, he brought a tremendous sense of joy to the Jewish people and not through superficial promises, but by teaching them about who they are on the inside and what they're capable of and really giving royalty to the Jewish individual, really teaching Jews how to become internal royals, even when their environments were quite dismal and their, their, <laughs> their wealth was non-existent and their spirit was shattered. But he taught what a soul is, what God is, what Judaism is. The name Hasidim was given to them by what the group known as the Misnagdim, which means the opponents. Interestingly, that they called the Hasidim Hasidim, which literally means the pious ones, and that is because of the focus of the teachings of Hasidus on extra piety and enthusiasm and passion and prayer and Torah study and mitzvahs and observance of God and love of God and love of man and love of Jews, etc. So that became the name that stuck by providence. Fascinating. So, so you, you had called it revolutionary, and you know, people look at Jewish tradition and they say, well, it's, you know, it's it's conservative, you know. There's a tradition. There's a corpus of law there that's passed yeah. from generation to generation, you know. And then all of a sudden, we're, we're seeing something that's revolutionary. So, how do you have a revolution within such a French tradition? It's a great question. How do you have a revolution in a tradition that is so fixed and often dogmatic and very precise and meticulous? It seems that Judaism is allergic to revolution. And that's exactly what triggered the ire of some of the great Talmudists of the era. A person like the Vilna Gaon, Rabbi Elijah, Ben Shlomo Zalman, Reb Shlomo Zalman Kramer. Rabbi Elijah is known as the Gro, the Gaon, the Gaon of Vilna, who lived in Lithuania and Vilna. He was of the greatest minds and sages of the time. He became a fierce opponent of the Hasidic movement. And I think one of the reasons was all revolution smacked of danger, of alien thoughts. You know, who's going to be now the new false messiah? What's going to happen now to the Jewish people? Let's just remain on our consistent trajectory so to keep everything safe. So we can understand very much the opposition. And it's very much based on this question. And the answer to that is, from the Hasidic perspective, of course, is Mozart, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, did not have to invent new keys on the piano in order to demonstrate his brilliance, and to give the world the gift of his profound and ecstatic music. Mozart's and Beethoven's and Bach's, etc., they use the same 84, 88 keys that we have in our piano. But instead of sitting down and like, da, 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 they sit down and like, in other words, it's the same keys. But what you do with those keys 
has to do with your own innovation and creativity. And I think this was the uniqueness of the Balshamta's revolution. He didn't change the keys. He didn't add any piano keys. He didn't take away any piano keys. The same keys that were made. We don't change Shabbat, and we don't change Tefillin, and we don't change the structure of Halacha, whether it's Pesach or Shavuos or Sukkot or the obligations of the Code of Law. And he did not change a thing. If anything, he added more meticulous observance and more passion and creativity and mindfulness in the observance of Yiddishkeit. The revolution consisted of the fact that the very same key suddenly were lending themselves to such beautiful compositions, to such profound music. And essentially, this was, I think, his most powerful contribution, to be able to uncover what was already embedded in Judaism, but is often concealed and can't be seen. Another component of this has to do with the fact that The greatest revolutions happen internally, not externally. (laughs) External revolutions are always short-lived, even powerful ones, because by nature, they're being imposed from the outside. The deepest revolutions are revolutions that change people on the inside. And that was the second tremendous skill of the Baal He managed to teach people about their infinity, And once you touch your own infinity, you're not the same person. The the disciples and the students of the Baal Shem Tov, who were they and how and where were they able to spread Hasidism and keep the movement alive and going? Right. So this is another fascinating feature about the Baal Shem Tov. Many historians like to portray the Balshamtiv as a people's person, a simpleton. Some would even say he didn't really know how to learn much. He wasn't very literate, but he understood the people. And he taught people that they can talk to God even when they milk their cows and even when they harvest their barley. And even the tailors or the water carriers, as they're schlepping the water from the river to the homes, they could still call out to God and say, God, I love you. Don't you love me? And in that sense, he attracted the masses who needed somebody to love them and give them some validation and compliments. That is such a superficial view of the Balshamtiv. And the very simple historical facts refute it because around the Balshamtiv, you had 60 of some of the greatest rabbinic sages of the time. People who were not only brilliant in scholarship and belonged to the elite scholarship of the Jewish world in Eastern Europe, but many of them were rabbinic leaders in their communities. They were were the head of Bati Din, which means they were great Talmudists. They dealt with the intricate laws of Jewish law. Why were they attracted to the Baal Because he said, milk your cows and smile while you milk your cows. A few names. Take the Maggid of Mizrich, Rabbi Doivber, who would become his spiritual successor. He was known as one of the great rabbinic minds of the time. Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Hakoyen was the rub of a huge community in Pulno, Ukraine. His book told us Yaakov Yosef is one of the first early Hasidic works. He was a genius. You had a man like Rabbi Chaim Rappaport. Rabbi Chaim Rappaport was the Avbezdin of Lvov, Lemberg, one of the great, great Jewish communities of the time. He was the Avbezdin. He was the rabbinic leader of the time. 
if you go through the Baal had 60 sages, this was his, so to speak, intimate group of, of great minds. They called him the Chavraya Kadisha, who sat and learned. The Baal used to give a daily class in Gemara, Rashi, Toysvis, Rishonim, which means serious Talmudic ideas to these great, great minds. And then you look at the students of his students, who they were. Take a person like Rebbe Yitzchak of Bardichev. People look at Rebbe Yitzchak Bardichev, one of the greatest leaders in the Hasidic movement, early Hasidic movement. As you know, he was a nice storyteller and he loved Jews. Rebbe Yitzchak Bardichev was the rabbinic leader of three huge Jewish communities. They couldn't, Rebbe was a big community. You couldn't know, have a rabbi who's just warm and a nice person. These are people who were fluent, fluent in learning. Take Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi. Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi is probably one of the greatest minds in halacha and Jewish law and Jewish history. The Rabbi Shavar Gon, who's the undisputed genius in, in, in Talmud, said the Rambam knew how to learn and the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, knew how to learn. You could see it from his Shulchan Aruch Harav and, and his Kuntus Achran. All of these people were transfixed and transformed by the Baal Shem Tov. Because the Baal Shem Tov really what? more than anything else. He revolutionized the landscape of Jewish thought by presenting a sophisticated and very profound interpretation and depth into literally every aspect of Jewish thought, Jewish practice, and Jewish law. And it's these students who went back to their communities and literally changed them. They changed them because they were changed. And each of them raised new students. And something else happened. The Balshemtiv's teachings were such that suddenly there was a new sense of unity among the Jewish people. Because the Balshemtiv emphasized very much the quintessential divine energy at the core of humanity. And in that divine energy, it's not the intellectual who is closer to truth than the person who has a big heart. Sometimes it's the other way around. That elevation of the intimacy in Jewish life, the attachment in Jewish life, it gave the Jewish people a sense of attachment, attachment with themselves, with their, each other, and with God. It gave all the Jewish people a new sense of dignity, not because he treated the simpletons with more dignity than the scholars, but he rather showed the scholars and the simpletons that there is a place of love and connection where we're all equal. So this message really spoke to so many, and all of them were attracted to the Baal Shem Tev, to his teachings, to his perspective. And it transformed the whole consciousness of much of the Jewish world. You, you spoke, Rabbi Jacobson, about obviously the opposition, the Mitnagdim, um, some of the great yeah. great leaders in the early days. Um, yeah. What, what was the trajectory of the opposition? How did it play out? Was there a reconciliation or was there some kind of a synthesis that both sides kind of move their positions, maybe Hasidim becoming intellectual branches, though, as you stated, they were, they, they had the Torah scholars, but how did they reconcile? When did they reconcile? And was there some kind of a, a movement that brought them together? Yeah. So the, the, the beginning of that position, it starts in the 1770s. The Baal Shem Tov passes away 1760. And in the next decade, there's very profound opposition because his students, who were all very well-versed and influential people, begin to spread the teachings more and more. And there's great opposition. Um, there's even a, a cherem, a ban, 
an excommunication edict issued against the Hasidim from some great rabbis, which has a very, very detrimental effect and splits the Jewish world. That position will increase over the next few decades, especially in the regions of Belarus and Lithuania, because those are the centers of Lithuanian Torah study in the world where that position was the greatest. Um, there would be another ban issued a few decades later, even more severe and more lethal. And uh, these would have devastating effects, devastating effects on the social cohesion of the Jewish people, on the unity of the Jewish people, and on the way people looked at the Hasidim and treated the Hasidim. In many communities, there would be all types of conflicts, financial conflicts, and of course, ideological conflicts, and conflicts in Shul, and sometimes even physical. Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad, who lived in Belarus, and attracted many followers from Belarus and Lithuania, he, his colleague Rabbi Aaron of Karlin, and his student, and many of the Hasidic centers in that era, they became the greatest targets. There was a Masira, there was a Jew, a rabbi, who informed to the Tsarist government, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi was a criminal of heinous, heinous crimes to the point that there was a question if he might receive capital punishment after he was arrested. But he was arrested in 1798 under very, very serious charges. They were blood libels. They were blood libels. But I, you know, I read, I read the, the, the document of accusation and basically they accused him of destroying Jewish life in Russia and encouraging a lifestyle of frivolousness, anarchy, and complete moral depravity, also attempting to overthrow the Tsar. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's serious stuff. They almost they almost killed him. He was liberated on the 19th of Kislev, 1798. Until today, it's celebrated. Yutas Kislev, Yat Kislev, the Hasidic world is a very big celebration. They call it Hagagula. The Hasidim understood it, that the physical prosecution down here was a manifestation of the spiritual opposition in heaven, to the revelation of these secrets of Torah. And when he was liberated, they saw it as a stamp and validation from heaven that now everything can be spread and promoted and, and publicized. The deepest teachings of Kabbalah that came out through the filter of Hasidic philosophy and literature, which made it accessible to the masses. The Vilna Gaon passed away in the year, Tovkov Nunches, that would be Sukkot. So he passed away in the year 1797. The end of 1797, uh, around October 1797, Sukkot Tovkov the Vilnagon passed away. Um, for a few years, some of his followers felt, ooh, this is going to weaken the fight because he really was the face of that position. And his prestige and renown were of, you know, unique, unique power and, and, and for good reason. So it continued for another few years. But what happened was, Slowly but surely, it just fizzled out. It almost faded away into oblivion. What happened was, basically, just put it bluntly, reality prevails. That's its nature. Reality comes from the word real. Whatever is real prevails. Uh, Maimonides experienced a serious fate, a, a similar fate. The works of Maimonides were burnt a few decades after his death. They were burnt. 
The works of Maimonides were put under a ban and excommunication, and Maimonides himself was seen as a very, very controversial figure a few decades after his death by some of the great sages in France and Spain. You had the Rameh, you had the Rabbeinu Yoyna, some of the greats, some of the greats who, who criticized the Rameh. What happened was 50 years later, many of them retracted, and then it fizzled out because people just saw the holiness and the power of the Rambam's works in terms of spreading Yiddishkeit and Torah. What happened was, after a few decades, two things happened. First of all, the truth came out. The whole basis of the accusation of the Vilna Gon was the Hasidim and Hasidis are going to destroy Jewish law and Jewish life. They don't care about mitzvahs. They don't care about Torah. They're mad. They behave in a lunatic way. They're irresponsible. They destroy the infrastructure of Jewish life, and they violate Jewish law. Suddenly, what was emerging from reality is that here are Jews in the millions who are not only dedicated to Judaism, but they're dedicated to Judaism with a unique enthusiasm and passion. It's turning people on to learn Torah, to observe mitzvahs, to deeper love of God, love of the Jewish people, love of Torah, love of halacha. It spoke for itself, even if there are ideological differences. Something else happened. And that is the rise of the Haskalah movement. The rise of the movement they called the Enlightenment movement, which came from Western Europe, from England and Germany and France, and started to travel to the East, suddenly created a whole new challenge in the Jewish world. As the walls of the ghetto were crumbling in Western Europe, with the Enlightenment, following the French Revolution, etc., for the first time, in history, Jews were allowed entry into the larger world, but it came with a price. As one of Napoleon's commanders said after the French Revolution, to Jews as individuals will give everything. To Jews as a people, nothing. Suddenly Jews were torn. Who are we? We want to become part of the conversation of humanity. We want to enjoy the egalitarianism, the fraternity, the liberalism, the progressiveness, the individual human rights of the enlightenment, but it's exacting a price. It demands of us to give up something. How far do we go? Many Jews converted. The reform movement was created in order to deal with this. And with these, these ideas started to travel to Eastern Europe, all of the Jewish communities, the Hasidim and the Misnagdim, were now faced with a very, very profound challenge. And mature leaders on all sides realized we're going to have to work together. We're going to have to work together to strengthen traditional Judaism. Credit is also due to the leaders on both sides of the next generation who understood that even if there may be differences, for example, in some groups, they're going to emphasize this, emphasize this aspect of Judaism. Other groups emphasize this aspect of Judaism. What unites us is much deeper than what divides us. And we will not be able to build Judaism if we kill each other. We're just going to destroy ourselves and destroy the others in the process. And therefore, just within a few decades, more or less, there was peace. When I say peace, it doesn't mean there were no debates, there were no arguments, but that level of animosity and mistrust, um, uh, I would say, uh, um, faded into oblivion, at least to a significant degree, at least in most of the communities. Uh, certainly remnants remained, and you know there, were always, there was always humor <laughs> from the Hasidim about the Mestanim, the Mestanim about the Hasidim, you know, jokes. 
not all the jokes were always done with the best and the best of spirit. Uh, there were certainly, you know, conflicts here and there, certainly. But again, among the Misnagda community itself, there's conflicts. The community itself, there's conflicts. But that continued, but on a, such a global and colossal level, it certainly was diminished significantly. And some of the great leaders who contribute to this from the Misnagda side were people like Rukhaim Valajaner, who was the greatest student of the Vilnagon, and he refused to oppose the Hasidim, his son, Rabbi Valajaner, as well. And then most of the Lithuanian sages already uh, did not continue the battle. They did not continue the war. They saw that uh, simply the accusations are, are irrelevant, not true, counterproductive, and, and frankly destructive, and, and absolutely no need for it. And they also started to realize the value that Hasidism brought for so many Jews and for so many communities. I would also say that Samach Tzedek, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was a grandson of the Balatanya, and he uh, he was born in 1749. Um, I'm sorry, 1789. He passed away in 1866. He was the greatest Hasidic leader in Russia at the time, the third Chabad Rebbe, the Tzamech Tzedek, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Lubavitch. He was a grandson of the Balatanya, of the founder of Chabad, and he made it a, a, a goal to travel all of the great communities in East, many of the great communities in Eastern Europe, especially in the area of Russia and Lithuania, and meet all of the greatest rabbinic sages from the Masnagdic side, and that contributed enormously to the sense of cohesion and peace. Was the Hasidism, I think you alluded to this, uh, exclusively an Eastern European phenomenon, and, and why was that? Could 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 it have spread to Western Europe pre Enlightenment, pre Haskalah, and and why didn't it? That's a great question. Um, I think there's two aspects. One has to do with history and geography, and one has to do with uh, culture and spirituality. In terms of history and geography, most of the Jewish people at the time lived in Eastern Europe. That's where the majority of the Jewish people lived. And when I say majority, I don't only mean in quantity, I also mean in quality, meaning the greatest yeshivas, the greatest centers of academia, of scholarship, of study, of learning, were in Eastern Europe. So it would be expected that new movements within the, the creative Jewish mind and Jewish world that sprung up from Torah, Torah movements, would first of all come from Eastern Europe and would have adherence in Eastern Europe. The place was simply fertile for tremendous, tremendous Jewish growth because the sheer numbers and quantity and in quality. That's number one. Number two, I mean, at that time, I believe probably most of the Jewish people lived in that area. They lived in, in that region where the Balshamtim lived and the students lived. I would say most of the Jewish world. Now, there's another element, and that is the unique the, the the uniqueness of those places those places were struck very very hard in the era in the in the time before the Balshamtiv. the poverty there was probably greater than in any other place in the world the suffering of the jewish people the anti-semitism even though it existed all over europe and of course in the middle ages france and germany <laughs> were no paradises let's remember that Let's remember where the Crusades came from and how much French Jewry suffered. But in that era of the Balshamtiv, the greatest poverty and suffering, I believe, was in Eastern Europe. So there was a certain openness, a vulnerability, and a fertility for the teachings of the Balshamtiv. 
Another component is that I think many regions, there was a certain susceptibility to the spiritual message of the Baal Shem Tov. The culture of the people, the openness of the people, the lifestyle of the people, I think it made them more open to the perspectives of the Hasidic movement, which were so much focused on understanding cosmic oneness, uh, spiritual oneness, focusing on meditation, on mindfulness, um, on the romantic and loving relationship between God and humanity, between God and the Jewish people, and focusing extremely, very heavily on the meaning of the soul and what the soul is. I think in those places there was a acute sensitivity to these to these ideas even more than in other locations. You had mentioned Rabbi Jacobson, the Baal HaTanya. Um, who was the Baal HaTanya, very briefly? What was unique about, if we can call this, his brand of Hasidism? We, we generally associate Chabad, Lubavitch today as a global movement, a movement that goes beyond its own group. Is that how it started? And was that a tradition that was passed on from the Baal HaTanya? Great question. Okay. The Balatanya was born in the year 1745 in Belarus. They called it White Russia, a place called Lyazhna. He was born the same day like the Balshamtov. A few decades later, Balshamtov was born in 1698. The Balatanya was born 1745, a half a century later, um, but uh, the same day, the 18th of Elul, Chai Elul. And um, he grew up, his father's name was Rebaruch. He went to the Balshamtov once in his life for his Upshemish. When he was three years old, his father took him to the Balshamtov, and the Balshamtov cut his hair. But then he grew up in Liajna. He was a child prodigy par excellence. Uh, he was, uh, his mind was something out of the ordinary. When he was a young man, he wanted to go learn from our teacher. And he had a choice to go to Vilna or to Mizrich. Vilna was the home of the Gon of Vilna. Mizrich was the home of the Magad of Mizrich, the successor of the Balshantar. The Balpanya said, and I heard that in Vilna, they teach you how to learn. In Mizrich, they teach you how to pray. Learning, I know a little bit how to learn, but prayer, I know nothing. And he went to Mizrich and he became the, one of the greatest students of the Magad of Mizrich. When the Magad of Mizrich passed away in 1772, there was no one successor. The Hasidic movement branched out into many, many leaders. And each one went to his or her own shtetl or community and city and became a father figure of the Hasidic movement in his shtetl or his city. Like Rebbe Limelech of Lezhensk, right? Becomes the father of one of the great leaders of the Polish Hasidic movement, the Seer of Lublin, right? The Alter Rebbe goes back to Belarus from the Ukraine. He goes back to Belarus. He lives in Lyazhna for many, many, many years. He becomes the Magad of Lyazhna, the teacher, rabbi, preacher of Lyazhna. And over the years, he develops a unique brand of Hasidus called Chabad Hasidus. Chabad is an acronym of Chachma Binadas, which means wisdom, understanding, knowledge, or more accurately, conception, comprehension, and application. What does it do? Its main focus is to systemize the ideas of Hasidus into a comprehensive program for life. Meaning most of the Hasidic masters, the way they taught was first and foremost through example, through living example, the way they prayed, the way they studied, the way they lived. And they would also give gems. They would throw out, I would say, nuclear uh, sparks of wisdom that were very inspirational. And you could see it in their books. You could see it in most of their books. Short, powerful, beautiful, electrifying, uplifting spiritual insights. 
when you look at the Alter Rebbe's books, it's a completely different brand. First of all, he writes a Tanya. Tanya is the code of Hasidic law, like the Shulchan Aruch. What does Hasidus believe in? What's our perspective? Why was the world created? What is Torah? What is mitzvahs? What is Yiddishkeit? What's the destiny of the Jewish people? What's the purpose of creation? How do we understand God? What is our connection to God? How do we cultivate serenity in life? What is our purpose as individuals, as part of the Jewish people? What's the trajectory of the universe? Why is there evil in the universe? How do we deal with suffering? How do we deal with anxiety? An encyclopedic, comprehensive code. What is Hasidus? That was a tiny, but also all of his discourses took the ideas of the Baal Shem Tov and the Magad and they contextualized it within the totality of Jewish wisdom over history. So he created really a system of thought. That's why he called it Chachma Bina Das. He also synthesized the rational and mystical streams of Judaism into a unified, comprehensive program for life. That was something very unique. He wrote a Shulchan Aruch, a code of Jewish law. And he also wrote a Tanya. He wrote many mystical books. And he tried to synthesize the two streams of Judaism, which is philosophy and rationality and mysticism. He tried to synthesize the Guide of the Perplexed of Maimonides, which is philosophy, the writings of the Arizal and the Zohar, which is pure mysticism, and practical law of the Talmud and the Shulchan Aruch into a unified And one of the reasons he explained he wanted that this should not just be based on the inspiration of an individual person. It should become a system that studied and comprehended and analyzed and dissected. And he was, he was something, I mean, his brilliance is, is, is exceptional. And as a result of that, he felt that the Hasidic teachings could become really a program for life. It could become something that you can appreciate and internalize and live with emotionally and on a daily basis. So that was, I would say, his unique, unique contribution. He has, uh, he has had tremendous, tremendous success in his generation, his successful generations. Now, you ask a wonderful question about Chabad today and Chabad then. All the seeds of Chabad today were all planted by the Balatanya, by the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe speaks about our role in fixing the whole world, our responsibility to the Jew, to all of the Jewish people, um, the need not to go into segregation, but to take responsibility for God's world to transform the landscape of planet Earth. All the seeds of Chabad today are all planted by the Balatanya. However, the historical circumstances of post-Holocaust Jewry, the dispersion of the Jewish people throughout the whole world, the secularization of most of the Jewish people, guided the last leaders of Chabad, particularly the most recent Lubavitcher Rebbe, to the unique role that Chabad plays today in the Jewish world. But the conceptual, existential, philosophical, and social ideas of Chabad are all based in the teachings of the Balatanya. All of them. Is there room to compare on some level the Hasidic movement with the Musser movement of Eastern Europe? The Musser movement in Eastern Europe, I think the comparison is the search for more. The search for more was a very, very prevalent experience as the exile was getting longer. Challenges were becoming stronger. The foundations of Judaism that were kept intact for thousands of years were unraveling because of tremendous pressure and influence from the outside. In all communities, there were casualties in mass. There was a search for more. So the response in Lithuania, the founder of the Muslim movement is known as Rabbi Sral Salanter. He came from a city called Salant. His last name was actually Lipkin, Rabbi Sral Lipkin. He was a great mind and a great heart. And he tried to introduce 
a focus on ethics in the Jewish world of Lithuania, interpersonal relationships, focusing on your refinement, what we call menschlichkeit, on your midas, you know, putting your ego in place, not just serving God, doing the laws and learning the Torah, but actually what does it do to you as a person, becoming a personality of Torah, becoming a refined personality of Torah. That was a very, very profound movement, and it had a very profound impact on many Jews, and Musser also had its opposition within the Lithuanian Jewish world. But I would say the approach of Hasidus and Musser, even though there are some similarities, the similarities are focusing a lot on personal refinement, focusing a lot not just on doing the mitzvah, but how you do the mitzvah, the intent, focusing a lot on your interpersonal relationships, how you treat other people, how you treat other people different than you, focusing a lot on humility and the lack of arrogance and haughtiness and egotism, especially in the name of religion. Over there, there are many, many similarities. But there are also fundamental differences, I would say, especially in approach, perspectives, and teachings. One of the major differences is in Musser, there's a lot of focus often on the toxicity of the ego, the toxicity of evil, and how careful we have to be from all of the various negative emotions that can kidnap us and can attack us. I would say in Hasidus, it was more a focus on the infinite greatness of man who is an extension of the infinite consciousness of God. That's, I think, one of the key uh, distinctions. What was the state of the Hasidic movement before World War II? before the Shoah, the Holocaust? And, and how did the Hasidic movement rebuild after World War II and the Holocaust Shoah? Yeah. Hasidism has served an incredible role in keeping many Jews connected to their Judaism throughout the 18th and 19th and beginning of 20th century. It's important to understand that during this time, more than half of the Jewish people would drift away from Judaism. I'm talking before the Holocaust. This was an unprecedented upheaval in Jewish life. Because of all the isms that captured the imagination of millions of Jewish youth, more than half of the Jewish people drifted away from Jewish life and faith to one degree or to another in very extreme ways or not such extreme ways. Besides the various denominations and movements that developed, there were so many other isms Socialism, for example, socialism and communism has gripped the imagination of millions of young Jews who went with the flow and felt this is our future. Judaism is not our future. The ism of Judaism seemed irrelevant. You had, of course, secular Zionism. Secular Zionism was another movement that gripped so many young Jews. And then, of course, you had the movement known as the Bundisten, the Yiddishisten. These were socialists, but very much connected to Yiddish culture, <laughs> Jewish life, not Jewish religion, not Jewish faith, and other isms that really, the Enlightenment itself, it, it lured, it lured into its grip millions and millions of Jews who drifted away from Judaism. Many of them got a Jewish education as kids, and then they grew up and they abandoned it. This is where the Hasidic movement played a major significant role, much more than any other movement much more than any other movement, even though the Hasidic communities also suffered these casualties, but you couldn't compare. In Poland, for example, and other places where the Hasidic movement was very strong, millions of Jews remained connected to Judaism in a very profound way, so its influence was profound, even though everybody was affected. Everybody was affected 
by the by the various isms, but you had you had millions of Jews who adhered in one form or another to the to the Hasidic movement. Um, and I would say that if I'm not mistaken, you know, in all the big Lithuanian yeshivas together, you had a few thousand students, and it was very very hard to keep the young people connected. The Hasidic movement had disproportionately much much more success in this area. Another area, another thing that should be emphasized is what happened in Russia with the Bolshevik Revolution. The Bolshevik Revolution destroyed Judaism in a way that the Enlightenment could not do in 200 years. The Evsektsia, which was the Jewish section of the Communist Party, destroyed Judaism in the former Soviet Union in 10 years, from 1919 to 1929, in a way that it could not be destroyed in 200 years by the Enlightenment. The Evsektsia was headed by Shimon Dimenstein. Shimon Dimenstein was a yeshiva boy. He learned in Tells. He got smisha, they say, from Reb Chaim Oyzik of Vilna. I think at some point he even learned in a Chabad yeshiva, I'm not sure. Shimon Dimenstein became the head of the Evsektsia, and in 10 years, this Evsektsia, they also arrested the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe in Russia. They almost killed him, they had him shot. He was saved the last moment in 1927. And in 10 years, what they did in the Soviet Union was unheard of. For 70 years, Judaism in the Soviet Union was completely underground because of the communists, particularly the Jewish communists. Of course, in 1929, 1930, Stalin became suspicious of them and he killed almost everybody. You know, he always killed his closest people because he was paranoid that you're not communist enough. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you're a Jew. And I should say this, it was the Has- few of the Hasidic movements in Russia that kept Judaism going underground, particularly the Chabad movement under the leadership of Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, what he did in the Soviet Union in those years is literally the stuff of legend. He and his Hasidim, his followers, he built 600 underground Jewish schools. 600 underground Jewish schools. Now, you know how hard it is to build and sustain a school in America where the government funds part of your uh, budget? Imagine in the Soviet Union, he literally kept Judaism alive underground in the 1920s. And then when he left through his followers in the 1930s, and when communism fell in 1989, and Jews started to come out of the basements, that whole underground network was alive and well, and it became the infrastructure for the revival of Russian Jewry, which for 70 years was completely, completely dormant and latent, besides a few pockets of Jewish life of the seniors that the communists allowed to be open. And it was, I think, very, very obvious then, the power of Hasidism, that the Jews, many, not all, but that many Jews, Chabad Hasidim and other Hasidim, other Hasidim that were there, that maintained the faith under such pressing circumstances was, I think, a real testimony to what Hasidism gave the Jewish people. This was different than the Holocaust. The Holocaust, Hitler came and just murdered everybody. In the Soviet Union, they didn't murder everybody, but they destroyed the whole culture. They destroyed the whole faith. I mean, Stalin murdered tens of millions of people, but Judaism was completely destroyed. And those who lived there, including my, both of my grandparents, both of my grandparents lived in Russia. My, my grandfather was arrested and tortured. My other grandfather was arrested and then he was liberated. So I know this personally, and yet they maintained, they maintained Jewish life under unbearable conditions for 70 years for 70 years, from 1920 
all the way till the death of communism in 1990. That's still an incredible, incredible feat. If you want to see a modern Jewish miracle, I know today, you know, Russia is not the place we're all running to visit because of the war between Russia and Ukraine, sadly. But I remember I went a few years ago to Russia before the war with Ukraine, and I was visiting the various communities, and I said, you want to see a modern Jewish miracle? Maybe one of the greatest Jewish miracles of history, you go visit Russia today. You see what happened. If anybody knows this Soviet history and how it turned around in the last few years, you're talking about a miracle that is akin to the splitting of the sea and maybe greater. Just in conclusion... Um... Oh, you asked about how they revived it after the Holocaust. That's one of the great miracles of Jewish history, how they did that. Nobody thought there would be a future. Nobody thought there would be a future. In 1945, the Hasidic world was basically almost completely decimated. Take a movement like a Ger, Bells, Alexander, Shartkov, Radomsk. We're talking about large Jewish community, Sachachov. Nothing left. Leaders themselves were wiped out and murdered. Their families, their successors, their Hasidim. You had Jewish groups, Hasidic groups in Poland that numbered 50,000 followers, 100,000 followers. There was nothing left. Everybody was murdered. There were pockets of survivors. Who could rebuild this? Who could rebuild it? You know, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, when he became a Rebbe in 1950, I, I wasn't born yet, but somebody told me he was in 770 once. The Rebbe came into a Fabrengen, and the Rebbe himself had to put out the tablecloth. <laughs> the Rebbe himself had to put out the tablecloth. The Satmer Rebbe, a boy, a, a, a Jew, he just died, his name was Rebbe Sogar, and told me the Satmer Rebbe needed a minion. Shivasa Batamas, and they sent a few Lubavitch boys to the Satmer Rebbe to make his minion. You understand? Today, they don't need a minion in uh, Rodney Street or... Uh, in Kyrgyz Yoyal and Monroe, Baruch Hashem, and seven seven, they also doesn't need a minion. But you're talking about, you're talking about Babiv, take a, a movement like the Bells. The Bells, the Rebbe lost his wife and he lost his children, he lost his grandchildren. He had nothing, Rebbe Aaron Bells. He remarried, he never had a child. His half brother had a child and he died a year later, and he's today the Bells, the Rebbe. The Babiv Rebbe, right, was murdered with his family. And the, the, the Shlema Halberstam, he came here without nothing. Everybody was murdered. It started from scratch. Everybody, they started from scratch. There was something special that happened. The, the Satmir, all the Hasidic movements almost in Israel and in America and over the world. They literally all started struggling having a minion. Nobody saw a future here. But I would say that this was the great tenacious perseverance and uh, passion and faith of the Hasidic leaders who started to rebuild they rebuild communities through their dedication and their love and their tending to the flock and their belief in Netzach Yisrael, the eternity of Israel. And when you look 70, 80 years later, it's, uh, it's, an incredible, it's an incredible reality. Many of these communities have rebuilt their communities literally from the ashes. And some of them have grown much larger to how they were before the war or at least similar size. It's, it's absolutely incredible. So, uh, we, I give credit to their leaders, and I give equal credit to the people, to the masses, to the people who were ready to win. You know, were ready to give their children this education. Not everybody could. Some people said, "You know, we have been through too much. We're not going back there." You know, we we we've been we've been down that road. But so many who you know got married and raised families and joined the synagogues and the communities and the yeshivas. And um, it's uh, a really, 
it's a special, it's a special thing to see. It's uh, really very incredible and extremely moving and a testimony to, uh, to uh, who the Jewish people are. Amen. Uh, we could go on and on. Unfortunately, our, our time is up. Maybe we'll be able to get uh, Rabbi Jacobson another time and go in depth on, on, a, on a certain aspect of Hasidism. But again, this has been uh, absolutely wonderful. And again, Rabbi Jacobson, thank, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Rabari. Thank you for the opportunity. And, but you didn't even ask me to share one Hasidic insight. Please, a, please, a, wait, wait, please, huh? please. Uh, you know, uh, that's, that's, we're ready. Okay, wonderful. So I'm going to share one beautiful teaching of the, of the Baal Shem Tov. <laughs> right? It's a, it's a, it's a teaching that, uh, it moves me. It moves me whenever I, I, I see it or hear it from the Baal Shem Tov. It's an extremely moving insight. The Baal Shem Tov says that uh, it's 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 very deep. Okay, I'm just thinking how to how to say it very briefly. It's Baal Shem Tov and explained by his student the Magid. It says that Joseph is tempted by his master's wife in Egypt who seduces him every single day. And one day he comes home to do his work and there's nobody there. She grabs him by his cloak and she says, lay with me. That's when he runs out and he's accused of promiscuity and and abuse and he's thrown into prison. This is in the book of Genesis, the portion of Ayesha. The Talmud says something very haunting. When you study the words, clearly it indicates that Joseph actually surrendered. He came home to do his work. It is a very subtle intimation that he came home to be with her. And at the last moment, he saw the visage of Jacob, his father. And that caused him to abstain and not to engage in the relationship with a married woman. What was it about the image of Jacob, his father? So here is a classic Hasidic teaching. It's very, very subtle. It's very, very deep. And I should say, 200 years before the conception of psychoanalysis, the psychological depth of this insight is mind-blowing. And here's the insight. What does it mean he saw the image of Jacob, his father? It doesn't mean he saw it in the window or he saw it on a screen or in a video camera or on a video. He saw it in Potiphar's wife. He asked himself, why am I attracted to this lady? What, what, what does she have? The answer is he was beautiful and she was beautiful. If Eret, beauty. In Kabbalah, we know that Jacob, Yaakov, is the spiritual embodiment of divine beauty, of divine teferis, of divine harmony. So Joseph looked a little deeper. And he said, what is it that I'm searching for in this woman? There's something in her beauty that... I want, that I want to be nourished. Joseph then traced back his craving to the source. What am I really looking for? I'm really looking for a spiritual beauty that I will be able to nourish much more through my relationship with my father, who is the embodiment of beauty, than with Potiphar's wife. And he abstained. Or to put it in simple English, he realized that what he's attracted to 
can be very, very misleading. Sometimes we're attracted to something. We think we're attracted to this person. It's not. This person has something that we're seeing, that we're looking for. And we're distracting ourselves by going to this person because she's married. She's not going to be able to do it for you. Can you find a spark? What are you really, really searching for? And connect to that. What Joseph really needed was attachment with his father. He needed to feel his father's love. This would be a distraction. So he could, he found in her and he saw that the depth of the attraction was he was looking for Tiferet. He was looking for a certain harmony and beauty and ecstasy and attachment and connection in his life. And he said, so let me get it through the real thing, not through the distraction. She's a married woman. And that's how he saved himself. So what the Vashamta was saying is, when people are attracted to things, first of all, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of your attractions. There's something to learn. It's not all evil. There's a spark here that you're looking for. And that spark may be very good and very holy. You just have to know what you're really looking for. You're not looking for the piece of cheesecake. You're not looking for the alcohol. You're not looking for this addiction or that addiction or for that woman or that man. You're really searching for your father. You're really searching for a relationship. You're really searching for something. So first of all, don't blame yourself. You're not an evil person. You're actually looking for something very holy. Number two, don't deceive yourself that you're going to receive it through this external addiction. This external addiction is just going to numb your pain. You're going to have to search for it more and more. Go for the real thing. So you can see how the Baal helped people open up vistas to their subconscious and help them learn about life and about the world in a way that helps people align themselves with a much truer, deeper part. That level of self-awareness to come out in the 1700s in the Jewish world in Ukraine is astounding. Absolutely. It's just a little Hasidic insight that I hope Beautiful. you can take home. Beautiful. Next time, maybe we'll just do Hasidic insights. Um, again, Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for your time. Very welcome. Have a beautiful, beautiful day, and God bless you.